Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. The unknown is often a source of stress and anxiety for most people. Yes, the degree of response to unfamiliar situations varies among individuals. Some handle not knowing what is around the corner, though they may not see it or understand it better than others. But in the vast majority of cases, not knowing how a situation an event will unfold and what the next step can or should be means a loss of control and therefore a heightened sense of pressure and even fear. When a relationship ends, these issues are turned up to 11, as I like to say. Often an early understanding of the larger context of the issues involved, some idea of how to put one foot in front of the other, what options are available for progress, what can be done if no such progress is being made. All these insights can restore an important sense of ground under one's feet. So there's a lot to be said for managing expectations early on. And the more experienced the source of information, the greater the sense of relief the stressed individual is likely to feel. Today, I'm sharing with you my dialogue with someone who is no stranger to managing expectations in a variety of contexts related to separation with years of experience to back it up. Robert Halpern is a highly accomplished family law lawyer, advocate, mediator, and arbitrator. He was called to the Bar of Ontario in 1985, and he is certified by the Law Society of Ontario as a specialist in family law. He currently leads Halpern Law Group, but before launching this practice, He was the head of one of the largest family law groups in Canada from 2000 until 2019. 
I have known Robert for many years, in fact, since I was an articling student at Epstein Cole. We have had a number of matters together, which I'm happy to report we resolved without the court's involvement. But wait, there is more. In addition to being a sought-after and accomplished family law and family dispute resolution professional, Robert is also an author and editor. I encourage you to read more about his publications and more about Robert himself on the firm's website, which I will include in the show notes. I know you will enjoy and importantly find useful Robert's insights about managing expectations. And now, here is our dialogue. As you know, my listeners, as you already know from the introduction, today I am very pleased to welcome to Saint Split, Robert Halpern, a very accomplished and very experienced family law lawyer, mediator, arbitrator, and author. Robert, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. We will be discussing separation and what follows for clients from a human experience perspective. And we have so much to cover. When we first planned this interview, I was thrilled to hear that you shared my view about the importance of this approach, that separation is first and foremost, a human experience. Yes, it involves facts, which are specific to each case, the law, procedure, selection of process to address the outstanding issues, all those things. But we would not be doing well our jobs as lawyers, mediators, arbitrators, if we didn't keep in mind at all times the human beings involved in separation and how they experience it step by step. I thought today we could discuss in broad terms managing expectations because in reality, most people who either decide to separate or who are on the receiving end of the decision don't know what to expect. This can and often does cause anxiety, fear, feelings of loss of control, very powerful emotions that can become downright overwhelming. There are many urban legends out there about how long a separation takes to address and how much it costs. Part of our job in the family law field involves managing expectations. So I was thrilled when I learned I would have an opportunity to address these topics with you, Robert. I would like to give my listeners a bit more insight into who you are. So perhaps you can tell us a bit about your decision to become a family law lawyer in the first place. Well, AJ, again, thank you for having me. I appreciate an opportunity to be on your podcast and to discuss this issue in particular. When you asked me about a topic that I'd be interested in discussing and I considered your listenership, I thought immediately uh, about managing their expectations as a topic because that's the thing that is 
so critical for clients when they come in, they just don't know what to expect. But to answer your question, I got interested in family law because it's a integration of a lot of things that interest me from the legal issues, which include the family law legislation, tax, real estate, estates. It keeps things very fresh and, and interesting from the perspective of the application of a variety of areas of law. And I really enjoy advocacy, but in addition to court, I enjoy being a mediator and an arbitrator and um, participating in those alternate dispute resolution processes on behalf of clients. So there's a great deal of intellectual interest from the perspective of those substantive issues and the process by which we can try and resolve those substantive issues. And at a human level, as you discussed, I enjoy helping people address those issues which arise from this very significant event in their lives. And it's the juxtaposition, I suppose, of those sub substantive issues, the procedural issues, the human component, and trying to bring about a resolution for clients that interest me. Personally, I have, I have five sisters, no brothers. So I grew up in an environment where there's no shortage of opportunity to learn how to engage in conflict resolution. And I'd like to think that I developed a certain skill set in that environment growing up. So family law and all those different forms of addressing it um, are a culmination of a lot of things, both personally and as a matter of interest, professionally. That's a terrific answer. And I learned something new about you uh, today as well, that you have five sisters. So that's, and no brothers. And no brothers. Yes, that's important. So, Robert, you and I know that every family law case is different, unique. Uh, but we are able to discern some patterns, some typical steps in a typical family law case, including based on our years of experience in this field. This helps us manage our clients' expectations. So why don't we start with a hypothetical? And my listeners already know I love these. Here it is. Martha and Vivica were married for 16 years. They were, in fact, one of the first same-sex couples to get married in Ontario. They have two children, Jack, who is 14, and Jessica, who is 10. They own a home together. They also own and run together a successful bakery called With an Indian Twist. Martha is in charge of the business aspect, advertising, finances, and so on. Vivica is in charge of the practical operations, including managing the bakery's three other employees. The relationship was rocky for some time before Martha told Vivica she wanted to end the marriage. Still, Vivica is devastated. She thought they had made a commitment to work through their difficulties, through dialogue, counseling, whatever it took to stay together and make it work. Robert, how would you manage Martha's and Vivica's initial expectations on the most human 
emotional level as the separation initially takes place? Well, usually it starts with a phone call. And of course, I'd be acting for one of Martha and Vivica. And during that phone call, I get a little bit of background and I, and I listen for a bit and I don't talk about process or next steps because generally there's a high level of upset, which is the, the person Martha or Vivica attempts to temper when they make that initial phone call. But I explain after I listen for a little bit about their story, which is usually sort of um, hither and yawn and um, uh, because there's a great deal of nervousness. I explained that at an initial meeting, I discussed the background facts. I discussed the law. I discussed the application of the facts in their case to the law and that I will map out a strategy. And I will discuss in that context, their various rights and obligations. So right from the beginning, I try and calm them because I know that there's a high level of anxiety by introducing a formula for when we meet, which will address the things that are most important to them, um, which is their rights and obligations and the process in which it will unfold in the context of the strategy. But as you say, each case depends on their own facts. But I would discuss with Martha and Vivica how ultimately we will, at that first meeting, discuss a foundation for moving forward. And I know you're going to ask me about the different processes, so um, I'm going to uh, defer commenting on those. But so to answer your question is what I, what I do when I first get that new client is explain to them that we will proceed in an organized fashion and will cover all the things that they want to have covered, um, but in an orderly, in an orderly way, and I'll give them every opportunity to speak about the the emotional component, while addressing what ultimately has to be a resolution to the issues arising from their breakdown. So it's a combination of assuring them that there is a process. We will get from point A to point B, while all the while listening and um, addressing their pain because of the different emotions which emerge on separation. So Robert, the first takeaway for my listeners about managing emotional expectations in a separation, what would you say about that? Well, I discuss the fact that there's a mourning because whether the person is leaving or has been left, they're dealing with, with dashed expectations. They had hopes when they exchanged vows or started cohabitation and things haven't panned out as they had hoped. And that's for the person left or leaving or if it's mutual. So I address that from uh, in the context of the emotional expectation, that very first thing, the fact that it's over and moving on from there. It's not my principal job. Um, I'm not a therapist, but I have to recognize that it is the fallout from the separation. So I try and shepherd them through the process, dealing with the emotional, all the while staying on course in respect of resolving the issues that they came to me to address. But there's got to be a high level of, in terms of managing expectations, high level of understanding that this is traumatic. It represents change. There's concern about the fallout for the children. 
peers, what it means for uh, the person vis-a-vis their relatives going forward, trust issues, uh, emotional and financial uncertainty. So I try and address all that to the extent possible while moving through the process. Great takeaway. Terrific first takeaway for my listeners. When I created the fact pattern, the hypothetical, I wanted it to raise some interesting issues, once which Martha and Vivica will have to deal with, both in the short term and the long term. We will call those substantive issues, meaning issues which involve decisions, perhaps involving a third-party decision-maker like a judge or arbitrator about the lives of Martha, Vivica, the kids, where they live, their finances, and so on. But before we cover those, let's talk about process, the how. Tell us, Robert, about Martha and Vivica's options for sorting out all those substantive issues they will need to address. And let's not forget that they own and operate a business together. Well, in terms of process, typically they, uh, the various options are put on a continuum from the perspective of the least combative to the most combative. Although there can be variations within each one of these steps along this continuum. What I mean by that is this, there is at its simplest, least confrontational. There could be direct talks between the parties or negotiation through counsel um, that involve identifying the issues and coming up with solutions fairly readily, all the way to expensive, protracted, lengthy, from the perspective of the process and the duration that it takes to conclude the court process, which interestingly involves assigning all determinations as to a party's substantive rights to a judge, whereas direct talks and negotiations has more involvement of the parties themselves. But sometimes those negotiations fail and party ends up in court, but there are a series of alternative dispute resolution processes that they may consider from mediation, which involves a third party, typically lawyer who will try and bring about a resolution with the parties um, directly. And it can be closed, meaning that it's private or it can be open where the result and recommendations are provided. That mediator can take off their mediator's hat and put on an arbitrator's hat in the context of mediar and at a different time than the mediation session on hearing different evidence can make a determination in respect of those substantive issues, or the parties can go to straight to arbitration and not have mediation first and ask a lawyer to make a determination of the issues under the Arbitration Act. So those are three forms of alternative dispute resolution, mediation, mediar, and strict arbitration. There's also collaborative law, which is a form of negotiation. I'm not going to talk about it today. I I don't engage in collaborative law, but I like to think that when I'm negotiating directly, I behave small c collaboratively, but that has its own uh, rules, collaborative law, and it's a way of proceeding. In respect of court, some fact situations 
as I would tell Martha and Vivica, or Vivica may involve having to go to court immediately and where it would be inappropriate to have a direct talk, such as where they have this business together and one of them is not listening to the other, taking monies from the business, destroying the business, um, interfering with the livelihood. Perhaps there has to be an action brought immediately to restrain that sort of activity or to return monies. So going back to that initial discussion, the facts, the law, strategy, the strategy will depend on the facts and the law from the perspective of immediacy. In more instances than not, parties will exchange financial information and they will attempt to negotiate directly a separation agreement. So the thing about every each one of these forms of procedural law process to get matters resolved involves financial disclosure. Uh, that's at the heart of all of them because whether you're asking a court to adjudicate or in the extreme or you're negotiating a separation agreement directly, you need full financial disclosure so people can know what they're bargaining either uh, away or pursuing in the context of addressing those rights and obligations to which I, I referred previously. Lots of options, and I have covered uh, some of those in my previous episodes, but this is a great summary, Robert. Uh, thanks for that. So can we give my listeners a second takeaway and this one about managing expectations for process? Yes. The key is be calm. Don't be emotional from the perspective of spending money on an issue which doesn't warrant it. Recognize, in the words of Phil Epstein, that sometimes money costs too much. Be restrained. Have integrity about the process, sometimes even when the other side isn't. And conduct cost-beneficial analyses in determining what process is best based on the matter at issue. Listen to your lawyer and do what you can to assist the lawyer from the perspective of providing supporting documentation for a financial statement. Um, I, at the beginning of each session, sorry, before each session, uh, the first session with the client, give them a list of headings for a narrative because I want to hear their story and their words. And that helps me have a record of their position and to help in assembling the facts and learning which strategy is the best after applying the applicable law. Let's introduce, and by the way, I'm happy to hear you and I have similar approaches to uh, these issues, and we are clearly both fans of Phil Epstein's, uh, which is also great to hear. Let's introduce a twist to the hypothetical, Robert. When Martha first told Vivica she wanted to separate they agreed that they would tell Jack and Jessica together. Uh, Vivica does not stick with that agreement, and she tells the kids on her own. In fact, she tells them that Martha is breaking up the family, and Jessica is very, very upset. She lashes out at Martha, and the school also reports she's acting out in class. How might this affect process? Well, going back to our initial discussion, it may be that it starts out where there's an exchange of financial disclosure and an attempt to negotiate. 
but all of a sudden you have to move from one course to another, one step on the continuum to another. And that is perhaps you might have to consider going to court, um, depending on the nature of the behavior. In the case of Martha and Vivica, it may be time to stay on the course in terms of direct negotiation, but bring in a third party, a therapist perhaps, to assist with the fallout from what has been done, uh, where Jessica's very, very upset. It may impact on parenting arrangements, so that could bring about a change in either negotiation, from negotiation to something more extreme. Each case, as you say, depends on its own facts, and the course of strategy will vary with the severity of the result of such behaviors as described here. So it's situation specific. If there's, let's let's take a, another variation with Vivica and Martha in terms of uh, the, the, the conduct of the business and certain behavior that's been undertaken in respect of destroying the business. It may be time to get a business valuator involved to examine what has occurred to come up with the value for the business at separation. It may be appropriate that um, they'll assist in negotiating a buyout. So I guess the point here is, further to your question, is the process may start one way, but depending on what happens along the way, this, um, this as the fact situation changes, your strategy may change. And this differs from many other forms of litigation. Sometimes when there's uh, a breach of contract, for example, or a slip and fall, maybe all of the events have already occurred and you're dealing with it retrospectively. Given the ongoing dynamic with families post-separation, you have to move with the fact situation depending on what may emerge post-separation, change your strategy, even though 97% of all cases settle or something uh, like that, the fact of the matter is that there are many twists and turns along the way before people can resolve matters. And sometimes time and fatigue and any varieties of, of factors will create a resolution. And sometimes it can be an intervening event such as a death or um, a new partner having influence, financial reversals, or children telling their parents, you know what, you two, Vivica, Martha, some years ago, um, had a certain thought for us in terms of what our the parenting regime should look like, but we're now 16, 17, doesn't interest us. We're not interested in that. So you've got to be able to adjust to changes as counsel and all of that against the backdrop of the substantive law, the procedural law, and the human dynamic, both at the immediately on separation and as ever evolving. As I say, whenever human beings and emotions are involved, you can have a plan, but that plan may have to be adjusted along the way and sometimes quite frequently, and that's what you identified. Let's have a big picture discussion, Robert, not legal advice, but a hypothetical discussion about the types of substantive issues Martha and Vivica will face and ways to manage their expectations as to what it might take to properly address these issues? Sure. 
after reading their narrative, the, the one I described, it's um, after years of doing this, you can readily identify what the issues may be. Typically, it's property, parenting, support, not in that order. And if you're familiar with the law, which flows from it, and how the courts have typically gone based on the fact situation that confronts you, you can make a determination as to the best strategy. But those are the big three. And within property and support, parenting, there are many sub-issues that have to be addressed, many variations within. So those are the three from 30,000 feet. But as you drill down in respect to property, there are many issues related to the calculation of net family property, both in terms of you know, marriage date, assets and deductions, separation date, assets and deductions, um, gifts received during marriage. So you have to know the law and how the formula works to be able to properly advise the clients on that. And support, you're dealing with issues and spousal related to uh, entitlement to support, quantum of support, duration of support, issues related to variation, impact of death, um, parenting, there are many different regimes. So you start broad and then you narrow based on the facts that present themselves and the ever evolving body of law. Spousal support, child support, very different now than when I started a practice from the perspective of guidelines, whether they're mandatory or not, just the notion of having guidelines. Uh, there's a great disparity across Canada and within Toronto in terms of how courts and individual judges treated such issues. Uh, it was more arbitrary. So you have to have a grasp on what the, what the facts are in the context of the law that applies. As obvious a comment as that is, it's, um, I encourage junior lawyers to go back to first principles when they have questions about, well, what do the rules say? What does the act say? So understanding the law in the context of the substantive issues and the procedures available to affect a resolution is, is key. But to manage expectations for a client, it's very important that you convey your understanding of the law, which applies to their facts, and to map out a strategy based on their needs. My narrative asks a client to list their objectives because as simple as that question is, not everybody has the same take on how the issues should play out. Some people are vengeful. Other people, they just they just want resolution and fast where money isn't a priority, but the children's mental health is. It really depends. There are some patterns that emerge, um, I find, based on any variety of variables, not to reduce any group or to to stereotype but it, it there are some things that develop after i guess uh, 35 years of of doing this the key though is in managing client expectations is to both appear and to be fully engaged so they know that you're their champion within uh, regrettably an infrastructure a, a system which sometimes doesn't permit justice as they may wish so part of managing expectations is managing their honest subjective beliefs about how things should unfold 
bearing in mind that if you were counsel for the other party, you will be hearing often a very different story. Sometimes it feels like we are on two completely different cases when we are on the opposites of a case, Robert, doesn't it? Based on the factual narrative that each side is presenting. Absolutely. And the beauty of practicing this a long time and developing rapport with other counsel, which, believe it or not, is probably one of the most significant features in terms of trying to resolve outstanding issues, is the ability for each of you not to, you and other counsel, not to at the risk of harming your client's best interests, but to be able to talk frankly about what a court would do with this fact situation. Because as upset as your client may be, in the end, when a judge has a big docket, a lot of files to address, there are patterns that develop in terms of how that judge will deal with their um, fact situation against the legal backdrop. And in that regard, there's established case law, which addresses on similar facts or various, those with slight variations, how a court will do it. So if you've got experienced counsel on the other side who aren't driven by their own ego and are interested in trying to resolve things amicably, expeditiously, and cost-effectively for the parties, it goes a long way to saying, okay, this is what a court would likely do. How can we help these people? That's in a scenario where which is most where you can address things in that manner. But as I indicated, sometimes you just have to bring a court application. We, I talked about property support and parenting, but there's so many other variations in respect of the problems that may confront you substantively from Hague Convention issues to annulment to um, child welfare to it, it really depends. And sometimes there's an overlap um, a multiplicity of issues that you're contending with at the same time. For example, with Martha and uh, Vivica, sure, they're dealing with a, a breakup, but they're also business partners. Uh, so um, there's that overlay, and there's the um, Ontario Business Corporations Act, which addresses how they, as shareholders, have to govern themselves, notwithstanding their um, marriage. So it's both exciting and daunting sometimes to look at the interplay between all of these different areas of law, which conflate at the time of separation. I was going to ask you about a third takeaway, but I'd rather double click on a point you made, Robert, about rapport between counsel. I always tell my clients that it helps their case if the lawyers get along. I think most people who are in conflict with their ex-spouse, let's say, uh, believe that the lawyers should be enemies too. And my take on the situation is it's helpful when the lawyers get along because they can look each other in the eye and say, hey, you know the law, you know what the likely outcome is going to be. Uh, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. It's very important. And this um, speaks to also the, the the issue of costs, which you raised before, uh, managing expectations about costs, ignoring the process for uh, which process you take for a moment. If you look at the relationship with other counsel, regardless of whether it's direct negotiations going all the way to trial, um, a client often asks, how much is it going to cost? And 
I say that there are four individuals involved in the process at the heart of it, the, the two clients and the two counsel. And if any one of the four is unreasonable, it's going to jack up the costs. I know that's very evasive for a client when they ask, but the simplest negotiation could become very expensive if somebody is unreasonable. And when I say unreasonable, I don't mean my perspective of what is reasonable, but I mean what a judge might regard as reasonable behavior, um, assuming that they are the objective voice. Um, not that it would go to court, but it's basically the reasonable person, the, that third party who not hearing of the client's emotional positions would say, okay, this is how I would resolve that. And that's something I try and do when I uh, conduct arbitrations, even in the face of tremendous uh, emotionality on the part of clients, take a step back. So getting along with other counsel, hoping that they've got the same perspective can reduce extremely potentially uh, expensive cases um, with involving perhaps millions of dollars to something far less complicated and more reasonable. And sometimes that's a recognition that both parties are saying they want to get on with things and they put a premium on the result, of course, but it's only one factor. Finality, certainty, good relations for the sake of the children, any variety of things could be variables that they want to have addressed, not just the financial result. I was going to segue into costs, but you already addressed that point, and that's terrific. Can you tell us, tell my listeners, because I know the answer, but does the choice of process affect costs? Yes, but you can have a protracted negotiation that costs a lot of money. You can have a short trial, which, relatively speaking, costs less, but... Generally speaking, generally, assuming full financial disclosure with relative ease, uh, if you can have can negotiate a result quickly, that's often the least expensive. But if there's a lot of haggling, more expensive. If there are fine, if there's full financial disclosure but fine legal arguments being made on discrete points of law, um, rather than trying to resolve it through compromise, then that could be exceedingly expensive. So um, there's the general answer that I'm, I can give you in terms of direct negotiation being, of course, cheaper than a trial, but there are also many variations within each option that can either minimize costs or increase. I, uh, I In terms of emotional wear and tear, though, the trial is uh, more expensive. Part of it has to do with what I mentioned before, where you have to relinquish control over your own fate to uh, a judge who will be determining issues such as parenting your children when you should have control. There's this couple for whom I'm um, a mediator arbitrator for, uh, I think my point is eight years because they cannot agree on anything and they've relinquished control. Um, and that's regrettable that it's come to that. But uh, they should be able to negotiate, but sometimes those things, to give an example of when something can be expensive, um, when it may or ought to be resolved in negotiation, can be um, protracted and expensive, involving, this involves summary arbitration, where there were materials filed, um, where submissions were made, where I had to make 
uh, lengthy award on a variety of parenting issues, which the parties should have been able to resolve of their own, but regrettably they can't. These are very insightful comments, Robert, and I very much appreciate your taking time out of your busy schedule. And I mean that to offer some of your expertise to my listeners. I appreciate that very much. And now we are going to lighten up our conversation a little bit. Those who have heard my interviews before know that at the end of each one, I talk about food. So I'm going to ask you three questions, Robert. Are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what is your favorite food or cuisine? Well, I love risotto. And I think it's because, like, and I hate to sound corny, but it, it's like the practice of family law can take on many different forms, um, depending on how you prepare it and what you can add, what interests you, for our, our colleagues that specialize in mediation versus advocacy. And I just think about that question. I, I think of that quality. So it has a variety for me. And um, depending on how it's made and what country, and it's that variety being spice of life that makes it really a food I love. And you've answered my second question because I was going to ask what makes it special for you, but you explained that so eloquently. So I'm going to inject a question before my next one. Uh, do you cook it yourself? Of course. Terrific. I consider myself invited once the pandemic is over, Robert. Of course. And so on to my third plant question, which is what is your favorite restaurant anywhere in the world? Well, um, I, I don't know. It's so hard to think, given COVID, of places outside. There are a few places in Rome that I've enjoyed, but in, I'm going to stick to Toronto and say how much I enjoy Allo, which is a great restaurant if you've got three or four hours and you're not in a hurry. When it's open, that's where I like to go in Toronto. That's a great evening. And tell my listeners roughly where it's located in case they're interested. Oh, I think it's on um, A-L-L-O. On, I think it's on uh, Spadina Round College. And there's Owl Bar in uh, Yorkville as well, which is uh, related to it. Uh, but uh, again, closed down now. Sorry, I don't have the exact address. But I'm looking forward to this all being over and soon. So you can go there again. And I'm very much looking forward to eating your risotto. My pleasure for that and for, for this interview today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Robert. Uh, it was terrific, and I'm sure my listeners will enjoy hearing your insights. Thank, Thank you. you again. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.